This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and abusive cultural values, including sexual discrimination, forced breeding, and the proactive use of violence. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 274. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the founder of Liminal Corvid Press and creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction and tell you the latest on my writing endeavors. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 15 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Daniel and his friends said farewell to Del Matthews, one of the two sides who were murdered by Victor during the Skyport job. Daniel was racked with guilt over what happened to Del, because if he hadn't healed Victor's injuries, Victor wouldn't have been able to kill him. Del's widow, Josephine, was in an especially bad spot, because her religion forbade her and Del from joining one of the hive's breeding cells. The hive is refusing to pay for Del's funeral expenses or their daughter's childcare costs unless Joe agrees to join a cell, which would mean expulsion from her church. Del's friends are furious about this, but since they, too, were part of the failed mission and are facing potential punishment for it, there's not much that they can do to help. All of them, that is, except for Daniel. None of his friends know that he was working for the other side in that disastrous mission, or that he got paid handsomely for his part in it. Seeing Josephine's grief, and the terrible situation the Hive has put her in, Daniel decided to do something about it. He took Joe aside and gave her the access information for the anonymous, numbered bank account where he received his payment. He lied to Joe about where the money came from, telling her that it was the result of a collection they had taken from friends of Dell's. Joe was overwhelmed and relieved. With the 50,000 marks in that account, she can cover Dell's funeral expenses and have enough left over to make a new start for herself and her daughter. Of course, that money was supposed to make a new start for Daniel, away from the Psy Collective. Without it, he's back where he started. He can only hope that the knowledge that he helped Josephine will comfort him, as he faces a long, dead-end life in the Collective. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 15 
There was a familiar figure waiting for Daniel by the entrance to the cemetery. She was wearing a short black dress with a matching sun hat and sunglasses, and she leaned back against a tree and watched as he approached. Daniel scowled at her. Come to enjoy the fruits of your labor? he asked nastily. She drew back at that, clearly stung. Ava Salindi pulled off her sunglasses and stared at him, hurt mingling with outrage on her face. Do you think I wanted this? He drew in a breath to shout at her, then abruptly stopped and let it out again. He'd be a damned hypocrite to hold Ava responsible for Dell and Trace's deaths when he just finished settling his own karmic tab. No, he admitted, lowering his head. She sighed. Look, after our last talk, I did some checking to find out who Victor killed, when I realized they had been friends of yours. She shrugged. I thought maybe you could use someone to talk to. Someone you don't have to hide from. He looked up at her. Yeah, he said, hoarsely. Yeah, I could. She took his arm in hers and started walking him toward the maglev station. Come on, she said. I know a good Seth Morin pub a couple of stops from here. If there's a better place in the world to drown your sorrows, I've never heard of it. It was late afternoon by the time they arrived at the pub. Daniel looked around at the dimly lit booths that lined the walls and the horseshoe-shaped bar that protruded out into the center of the room. The intervening space was filled with small tables, each with four chairs around it. They weren't big enough for four people to eat a proper meal in comfort, but as a place to hold drinks, they were more than sufficient. A crowd of happy hour clients filled the room, most of them men stopping off for a drink on the way home from work. Ava sized up the clientele and grimaced. Bad timing, she muttered, backing out of the entrance. I can't go in like this or I'll be propositioned every five minutes. Daniel looked at her with concern. Should we try somewhere else? Oh, no, it's fine, Ava assured him. Just give me a moment here. She reached down to her belt and did something with her thumb on the underside of the buckle. As Daniel watched, her black dress reshaped itself into a buttoned shirt and slacks, while her shoes changed from open-toed sandals with six-centimeter heels to black loafers. The sunhat's brim contracted as it turned itself into a fedora. Then Ava herself changed her body shifting form even more quickly than the outfit. "'Yeah, that's better,' Evans said, adjusting the collar of his shirt. "'We'll draw a lot less attention this way.' Daniel shook his head in amazement. "'I have got to get myself an outfit like that. How much did it cost?' Evan grinned. "'Hell if I know. I got it from a wizard in exchange for helping him with a problem. Probably worth more than I make in a year, though.' He opened the door to the pub and gestured for Daniel to go in. They seated themselves at one of the booths near the back, away from the bulk of the crowd. Evan went up to the bar to place their order, and returned a minute later with two pints of stout ale. To absent friends, he said soberly, raising his glass. Daniel lifted his own glass and clinked it against Evan's. Here, here, he said quietly, and took a long pull from the drink. His eyes widened at the taste. This is good stuff, he said appreciatively. Kelligan's? Evan shook his head. 
Microbrew. Mac makes it himself on the next floor down. Daniel took another drink, rolling it around in his mouth before swallowing. Tastes like... Is that oatmeal? Evan nodded, and Daniel chuckled. There, you see? Evan said, gesturing at him as he took another drink. As a wise man once said, beer is proof that the Allfather loves us and wants us to be happy. Daniel paused in mid-sip, then set the beer down. I'm not so sure about that, he said, unable to keep the bitterness out of his voice. Things didn't exactly turn out so well for Dell. Or Trace. He lowered his eyes to the table. Or me. Evan took a long drink from his own glass before replying. You want to talk about it? Daniel shrugged. Want to? Yeah. Should? Probably not. He lifted his eyes to Evan's. No offense, Evan. I like you and all, but you work for the Syndicate. I think Victor's already told the vamps more than we ever wanted them to know about the Collective. Evan frowned. There it is again, he said, leaning back in his seat. More of the us-versus-them talk. Daniel looked up at him questioningly. Evan spread his hands. Every spooky I talk to seems to live in this paranoid world where everyone's out to get them. This despite the fact that there's never been a major case of discrimination against telepaths anywhere in the world. He leaned in close over the table. I've played straight with you, Daniel. Avis told you things that would get us in a lot of trouble if anyone ever found out. Don't you think you owe me at least a little bit of trust in return? Daniel looked away, blushing. In the silence that followed, a waitress brought them two dishes of shepherd's pie and a plate of chips. Evan ground sea salt over the deep-fried potato wedges and sprinkled them with malt vinegar, then took one and leaned back as he ate it, still waiting for a response. To the ninth with it, Daniel thought. I'm already in trouble if anyone finds out. Besides, he has a point. You're right, he said, turning his gaze back to Evan. You have trusted me, and I appreciate that. But I want you to promise that you won't share any of this with anyone else, all right? Not your friends, not your family, and especially not with any vamps. Evan nodded. You have my word. And for the record, I'm more of an independent contractor than a part of the organization. They can't force me to tell them anything, and the Lothanasi will make them regret it if they try. Good enough. Daniel took one of the chips and regarded it for a moment before biting off the end. The malt vinegar wasn't bad, he decided, though he preferred ketchup. Then, after taking another drink from the oatmeal stout, he began to talk. He did not tell Evan everything, but he told him a lot. About the telepath's fears of extinction and the consequent drive to reproduce— about the breeding cell structure and the way low-powered males were marginalized in telepath culture, about his debts to the Hive and the way their all-expenses-paid society had essentially bound him in a set of velvet-covered chains. Evan broke in from time to time to ask a question, but for the most part he just sat quietly and gave Daniel a chance to vent. "'It's not that I hate my job,' Daniel said. "'I don't.' I'm good at what I do, and I use it to help people. And it's not that I hate the collective, either. 
We're building a society with no sickness, no poverty, no racism. When it finally becomes what it's meant to be, it will be beautiful. It's just the way things are right now. He gestured helplessly. The way things are right now, you're not enjoying the benefits of that ideal future, Evans said. The collective thinks it's at war, or will be soon. And you can't get anywhere in a warlike culture unless you're strong enough to make the cut for the army. Daniel frowned. I wouldn't call us warlike, he said, a little defensively. All we really want is to be allowed to live our lives in peace. It's not a question of what you want, Evan said. No sane person ever wants a war. But if you see outsiders as a threat, and believe that an armed defense is the only way you're going to be safe from them, then you're going to find yourselves in the middle of a war whether you want one or not. Warlike societies don't fight because they like fighting. They fight because they're convinced that it's the only solution. Remember, the first two people killed at the Skyport were both normals, not spookies. Evan smiled humorlessly. When the only spell you have is a fireball scroll, every problem looks like a pile of kindling. Daniel considered that as he picked at the remains of his shepherd's pie. Evan's words reminded him of what Nathan had said, about perception being more important to the hive's behavior than reality. Could it be that the Collective's own fear of conflict was the very thing driving them towards it? Assuming you're right, what can we do about it? Evan shrugged. I think the more immediate question is how you can work with the system you're stuck in. I'm assuming you don't actually want to give up on the Collective, right? Daniel sighed. Not really. I just don't see how I'm ever going to be satisfied with the life that the Hive has planned for me. Right, Evan said. He leaned forward and gave Daniel a conspiratorial smile. So change the plan. Change the... how? Evan cast a look around the room to see if anyone was watching. When the androgyne's head turned back to Daniel, Ava was grinning impishly. Isn't it obvious? she asked. Daniel's jaw dropped. For a full minute he sat there, saying nothing, while Ava drank her ale and watched him, eyes sparkling with amusement. Never thought of that, did you? she asked. Daniel shook his head. No. But it would work, wouldn't it? If you became an androgyne, your female side would be dominant. You wouldn't have any limit on how much time you could spend as a woman, so you'd be able to bear children for the collective. You'd instantly go from being unwanted and unnecessary to being one of their most valuable members. Daniel nodded distractedly. In all the times he had reflected on his situation, the idea of accepting the curse of Metamore had never occurred to him. Ava was right. As a woman, he... She would be welcomed into a breeding cell without hesitation. Every population is limited by the number of fertile wombs available, their instructors had said. Every woman of childbearing age must be prepared to... Oh, gods. I... I don't think I could do it, he said, looking back at Ava. I'd have to... I'm not attracted to men. Ava snorted. Is that all? she said, waving a hand dismissively. The sex swap will help with that, believe me. Evan doesn't like having sex with men either, 
give the body's hormones a little credit. Daniel's mouth felt dry. He took another swig of beer and swallowed hard. But you've been an androgyne for most of your life, haven't you? Ava nodded. I'm fifth generation. My parents had Evan take the curse just after his first birthday. Right, Daniel said. The curse gets stronger when it's reinforced in successive generations. With your family passing down the same curse so many times in a row, you and Evan are almost two different people. You've been his alter ego for as long as either of you can remember. Evan's never had to deal with your attraction to men, because he has you to process and interpret those feelings. He picked up a chip and pointed it at Ava before eating it. Tell me I'm wrong. Ava shifted in her seat, and her eyes fell to her beer. You're not wrong, she admitted. And that's the problem. I don't have a lifetime of experience as a woman to help me with this. He sighed. It's a brilliant idea, I'll admit, but I'm not sure I could go through with it. Ava shook her head. I don't think it's as big a problem as you're making it out to be, Daniel. I know first-generation TGs who haven't had any trouble making the transition. You might find it's easier than you think. Maybe, Daniel allowed, but it's not exactly something you can undo once you've done it. Ava's eyes went distant and thoughtful for a moment. Maybe, she said. Then her eyes snapped back to Daniel, and she smiled. Maybe not. I have an idea. He raised an eyebrow at her. Yeah? A test drive, she said. There are temporary spells that can duplicate the effects of the curse. If I can get one for you, will you try it out? Daniel hesitated. I gave my payoff to Dell's widow, Ava. I don't think I have the money for that kind of magic. Pish posh, she said, waving her hand. I'll take care of it. I'm still in good with that wizard, and this sort of thing is his speciality. Her expression sobered. Besides, I want to help. I can't bring back your friends, but maybe I can at least help you find a better life for yourself. Daniel looked at her and saw sincerity in those spell-crafted violet eyes. He raised his hands in surrender. All right, I'll give it a try. She gave him a dazzling grin. Brilliant. I'll pick you up tomorrow after work, then. We'll have the whole weekend to put you in touch with your feminine side. And that's the end of Chapter 15, and the end of Part 1 of Making the Cut. Come back next time as Daniel tries on a radical change in his search for belonging. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of January 30th through February 5th. I wrote 5,241 words this week, over the course of 7.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 723 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 292 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of January, I wrote a total of 23,951 words in 25 days, averaging 958 words per day. That ranks ninth out of 69 months since I started this podcast. 
This is also the fourth month in a row that I met the goal of riding on at least 24 days in a month. I spent 33.75 hours riding in January. Compared to December, my word count increased by 9%, and my riding time increased by 13%. This week was devoted almost entirely to working on Honor Bound. I finished up the last big confrontation in the book, where the external through-line is resolved, and the bad guys get their comeuppance. Now I'm working on tying up the loose ends, resolving the tension in some character relationships that were set up early in the book. This gives me the opportunity to show how Honor and Natasha have grown over the course of the story, and how their actions have shaped the way the other characters view them. The story is now in Chapter 45, and the manuscript is over 128,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.